Thank you, Pastor Ken, for bringing us uh, the, the glory of the Word of Christ. And if you're just joining us, my name is Pastor Troy. We're thankful to have you uh, worshiping with us. And uh, we've been walking through this past year the Gospel of John. We're uh, just slightly over halfway through. And what we've seen here are seven signs that John gives to us, and these are certainly not the only miracles that Jesus did. In fact, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, list other miracles, and, and John himself at the end of his gospel says that if, if uh, and he says that a little bit metaphorically, but he says Jesus did many other signs than this. That if, if, I suppose that if they were all recorded, the, bo- the world couldn't hold all of the, all of, all of the books that would take. So he saw many miracles, and yet he chose these seven signs that attest to Jesus' deity and the fact that he is indeed the Messiah. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we, we saw Jesus changing water into wine. Now, now some of these signs, uh, really only his inner circle really saw, okay, or recognized what had happened. And of course, that was an elemental uh, miracle of recreation. Uh, the second sign is in chapter 4, and that was healing the official's son from a distance, something that showed his sovereignty, right? The third sign was in chapter 5 of John, verses 1 through 15, in which Jesus healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. And now this was a more public sign. Uh, and then the next one, uh, the fourth sign was the, the feeding of the 5,000 in, in John chapter 6, a very public sign of creation in which Jesus turned just a few loaves and fishes into this huge feast that fed these, uh, the, this huge crowd, and all of these people saw his, his glory at that point. The fifth sign was the walking on water, which was, again, a more private sign for his disciples. Uh, and then the sixth sign was one that, that really uh, f- was really in the face of the religious leaders because they, they had to interact with this man who had been born blind, and they had it verified by his parents. Uh, there was no, no doubt that, that this was indeed a, a man who had been blind and whom Jesus had healed, and this was such a, a miracle that had, had never seen, been seen before, never even in the Old Testament had, had a person who had been blind had their sight uh, their, their eyes recreated. And finally, we, we saw last week this incredible miracle of bringing Lazarus, who wasn't mostly dead, right? He was really dead. It had been four days, right? And he brought him back to life. And, and this is something that created a huge amount of buzz. And, 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 and so here we see uh, the response that Pastor um, Ken just read to us from these religious leaders And so this has led us to the sermon title, which is quite a mouthful this morning, The Anatomy of Unbelief and an Unwitting Prophecy of Atonement, or we could just say The Plot to Kill Jesus. But this is exactly what we see here, and that is we we see uh, what unbelieving hearts really look like, and so we're going to just take a little bit of time this morning uh, in our our message here to, to pull that apart. Um, we're, we're, we're going to dissect that heart of unbelief. And, and the reason that we do this uh, is, is not to just 
um, mock these religious leaders who were quite wicked in their unbelief, but we want to examine our own hearts. And I'd encourage you, whenever you, whenever you are faced with the ugliness of unbelief or sin in others, I, I encourage you to cry out the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 23 through 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, there could be shadows of the same sin that may lurk within our own hearts. And so let's, let's look at the anatomy of unbelief. And so the first point that we see here this morning as we consider this text is that the human heart is not neutral towards God. That the human heart is not neutral towards God. The human heart is sinfully depraved, and it acts in its own self-interest. Paul had something to say about this in Romans chapter 3, and he quotes from the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now that, that's, that's a mouthful. And that's some hard stuff right there, talking about the human heart, the unregenerate heart, the heart that does not have a living relationship with God. And this is what we see reflected in our story. Now again, let's remember the context here. Jesus has just publicly and undisputedly raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and these religious leaders that we have, have just heard about, they have heard these stories of Jesus' power. There were, there were many who had recounted to them the feeding of the 5,000. And they had personally interacted with people that had been miraculously healed by Jesus, such as the paralytic at Bethesda, and, and the man who was born blind, who had stood up for Jesus, and they had cast him out of the, the temple. But, but now they're confronted with a, with a rush of witnesses who testify that they just saw Jesus raise a man from the dead. So look again at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And you think, how could you not? To see a man raise a man publicly and undisputedly from the dead, how could you not believe? But, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Well, well, who can raise a dead man back to life? Only somebody who has the power of God. So, so how do they respond? What do they do? Do they bow their knee before the Son of God and, and welcome their Messiah with some repentance for all of the persecution that they had inflicted on him? No. What we see here is that they continue in their unbelief and they assemble the Sanhedrin. That would be the, the, the highest Jewish council together to discuss their problem. Now, now you need to remember that the, the Sanhedrin was, that was, this is the highest of the governing religious 
councils, right? And it was, it was comprised of two parties. You, you had the Pharisees, and if, if you want to, we, we've talked about the Pharisees already some, but if you want to think of the Pharisees, you should think of the, the expression, it's not fair, you see? These, these were the conservatives. These were the conservatives. They, they believed in the integrity of the law, but instead of being mastered by it, they tried to master it. And, and, and they, 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 they used it for their own power. They were the legalists, right, who created extra laws to make sure that the laws were kept, and they thought they did a pretty good job keeping it, and they rejected Jesus because he pointed to all kinds of hypocrisy in their lives. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So you had the Pharisees, and then you had the Sadducees, and you can remember the Sadducees by, they're sad, you see? Now, now these were the liberals, and you might think, well, well, why would they be so sad? Well, you know, they, they were, when I say liberals, I mean theological liberals, um, and, and they did not actually believe in the reality of the resurrection. So we might call them naturalists. Uh, life is just about uh, what you can see and touch and text, test with the, with the scientific method, okay? And all this uh, uh, supernatural stuff in the Old Testament, that was great. Uh, it was mythology, right? It was metaphorical. And, and so, frankly, that's just depressing, right? I mean, if you're just going to die and your brain's going to rot in the ground and, and there's no hope for the future, I'd be sad too, if that's what I believed. So you can see why the Sadducees would be Sad, you see? Uh, and, and frankly, uh, even Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, talks about the Sadducees being a particularly grumpy people. They, they were mean, okay, uh, and, and how they interacted with others. And they, for, for one, you need to understand they were kind of the upper crust of the society. So while the Pharisees were, um, were the conservatives and, and took the law very seriously, the Sadducees were actually the Roman collaborators. They were of the priestly rank, and so they, they actually profited by this kind of status quo. They, they, they had position, they had power, and they were the higher class. So what did the Pharisees and the Sadducees have in common? Well, not a lot, right? I mean, I think of the Republicans and the Democrats today, right? They didn't like each other. I mean, there was a lot of animosity between them. But both of these groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, hated Jesus, because he upset the apple cart, right? He was a threat to their power base. And so note here, as they get together and talk about what are we going to do, uh, notice here that they acknowledge his divine power. It was beyond dispute. They acknowledge it, but they refuse still to believe in him or to bow their knee before him as their Messiah and as the Son of God and to follow him. And so look at verse 47. So the chief priests, that would be the Sadducees, and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? Now, now the word sign here that they used uh, in Aramaic or Hebrew, uh, translated by John into Greek, it doesn't just mean miracle, although it means miracle, but it actually signifies, quote, an event which points to a reality with even greater significance. So that's a, that's a strong, powerful word that they just acknowledged Jesus does 
He does these signs, and he said, and they continued and said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now you need to remember historically at this point, uh, the, state, the nation of Israel was a semi-autonomous vassal state of Rome. Several empires had come in and, and, and crushed and taken over, and, and the Romans had, had come and beat out another empire, and, and they had allowed the Jews some self-government, although they had garrisons of their own uh, soldiers. They appointed puppet uh, governors, and they allowed Judaism. They had actually a point, they had a, they had a, a concept of, of one race, one religion, so they were going to allow the subjugated peoples to follow their religion as long as it did not get in the way of, of, um, of, of favor or of loyalty to Rome. And so that's why you had the, the, you had the Sadducees who were co- collaborators. The Pharisees were too, although they, they, they were a little more nationalistic. Uh, they probably muttered under their breath a little bit more against, against uh, the, the Roman overlords. But here you have these, this governing class of religious leaders who were concerned and, and loved their position and their power more than they loved God or his eternal plan for their redemption. Now, now ironically, about 40 years later, they lost both their position and their power when the Romans captured Jerusalem and leveled and raised the temple in 70 AD. But what we see here is that people believe what they want to believe. Despite undisputed evidence, right, people believe what they want to believe for their own power and self-interest. And so we need to remember, as we're sharing the gospel with people, okay, as we're, as we're engaging in apologetics, which we should do, and pointing to all of the reasons to believe, we need to remember that it is not a neutral chess match, where if you can just kind of outwit, outplay, out-argue, uh, get them in a checkmate, they're just going to kind of knock their king over and, and say, okay, I, I give up. You beat me. Uh, you've proven to me logically uh, why I should believe, and so I'll bow my knee before Jesus Christ, right? The human will is not neutral. The human unregenerate heart is not neutral, uh, but it is um, against submission to God. And but for the work of the Holy Spirit, we too in this room would refuse him still. I, I, love the, I love the lyrics from the song, All I Have is Christ. And if I had thought about it earlier, I would have asked, I would have put in a request here for Chris, but maybe, maybe soon in the future. But it says, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life has led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. So the the human heart is not neutral towards God. We believe because of his grace, his spirit came and and opened our our eyes to see. He has given us new life. So he gets all the glory for our salvation. But the human heart is also great, and this is our second point here, at rationalizing sin. The human heart we see here is great at rationalizing sin. And we see this in our own society today on a macro scale. Think about moral relativism. People now celebrate 
what we overall as a society used to largely recognize as sinful. Today, it's not just permitted, but it's celebrated. In fact, it's not only celebrated, it's said, if you don't celebrate this too, you are a bigot. So we've seen this on a macro level, but let's look at our own hearts this morning as we see the wicked rationalization at at place in this story, right, of of our sermon. So these religious leaders make it sound in their deliberations like the nation's future is in jeopardy when the real issue here is the loss of their own power and influence. Then they listen to their high priest, who happened to be a Sadducee, who suggests homicide as a great solution, as an acceptable solution. Okay, so in verse 49 we read, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Now remember what I said about Sadducees being rude? Here we see, case in point. He just, you know, just kind of, they're all deliberating, what are we going to do? And he says, you guys are idiots, you don't know anything. And then he says, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now I think when we read this, we need to be careful from our vantage point, right, which is post-crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, right? We need to make sure that we don't read this uh, from our vantage point and in any way falsely attribute noble motivation to Caiaphas here, okay? This was a brutal, wicked man who was a total pragmatist, and what he is saying is, it's either Jesus or us that's got to go. And he's saying, him, right? He's saying, better to kill Jesus than to lose our position and power. And, 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 but, he, but he made it sound good. He, he rationalized this wickedness. And so we need to beware our own ability to rationalize sin. Point three here is that the human heart is capable of irrational wickedness. So we, we need to be careful because know that each of us is good naturally at rationalizing sin, but we need to also beware that the human heart is capable of irrational wickedness. And what I mean by that is going far beyond what we ever thought we could do. Okay? So here what we see in verse 53 is that so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, several times before, They'd gotten mad when Jesus was in dialogue uh, and when Jesus had made some of the I am statements talking about who he really is. And they had gotten angry and they had tried to stone him several times, but we always read that Jesus escapes from their hand. And we don't know exactly what that looked like, right? We don't know if he actually used a little bit of, you know, miraculous power. I think not. I think he literally, as a human, uh, had a duck and hide and escape, and his, his disciples helped cover him. And, and, and so it was, it was a kind of, a, of, a, of a, almost a cat and mouse kind of thing where these people are trying to kill him. We even see in our text that he withdraws to a more remote location where he could even flee in the, into the wilderness if he has to because it wasn't yet his time, okay? Uh, and so they had gotten mad before, but now the change here is we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees officially coming together and making a firm official plot to kill Jesus. Before, it was more of a knee-jerk reaction. They got angry. They picked up stones. Jesus got out of Dodge. 
But here now we see a codified plot to kill Jesus. Now we're in John chapter 11, and Jesus is actually crucified in John chapter 19. And what's interesting here is that, that for the next seven or eight chapters, we have all of this taking place in one week, right? During the festival of the Passover. And, and so um, it's easy to think, well, we're just halfway through. We must be halfway through the ministry of Jesus. No, actually, in John, as John records things, we're right here one week before the crucifixion. And so bear that in mind. We're going to read a lot of words of Christ over these next few chapters or next seven chapters. But this is it. This is the official plot that led to the very crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And this is when these minds come together and, and Satan uh, gives them this um, idea and it's codified that they are going to try to assassinate or, or kill Jesus. And they want to do it publicly. Uh, they want to shame him. They want, um, they want all of his followers to be stamped out. And so here's how Jesus responds in, in verse 54. We read, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? So you have all this, this buzz going on about Jesus. So verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they may arrest him. So, so in, instead of caring about leading their people in remembrance of the Passover, what we see here is that these religious leaders are, are totally OCD about getting Jesus, right? And they're enlisting others. In fact, we see in the next chapter that they're willing to not only kill Jesus to get him out of the way, but anyone who would point others to Jesus. Uh, if, you, if you look, for, uh, if you turn the page in your, in your, in your, um, in your Bible, or you look over to the right, in John chapter 12, verse 9, we read this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Well, yeah, wouldn't you? I mean, if, if you had a, a dead man who had come back to life, like who had been really dead. We're not talking about just, you know, in, a, in an operating room, you know, says that their, you know, their soul kind of lifted up a little bit and looked down. Somebody who'd been dead for four days and their body had begun the process of decomposition and they came back from the grave. Would you not want to ask some questions? Like, what did you see? What did you, who'd you talk to? What did you experience? I mean, we would, so you can imagine the people who were coming to see Lazarus. And what is Lazarus talking about? I mean, Lazarus is saying, probably describing um, paradise and, and then describing being called by Jesus by name and his power to bring him back and, and how he just, how, how he thought of one thing when he came back and that was just going to Jesus. And he's pointing people to Jesus. And so what did they do? So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Do you get that? So these were the, the, the people who had been sworn to lead others to know God, who were, were just plotting murder left and right because of their hatred 
of Jesus and their love for their own power. It's, it's an irrational wickedness here. In fact, maybe you've seen the, the Pink Panther movies. Um, I couldn't help but think of Inspector Dreyfus trying to kill Inspector Clouseau. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's perfectly fine. I'm not actually endorsing the movies, all right? I'm thinking of the old ones. Some of them got a little crazy as they, as, but, but basically you've got this, this, this French inspector who has made a, a vow uh, to the law, to, uh, to, to protect the law. And you've got this, this guy who works for him, who's just this klutz, this crazy, clumsy inspector, Clouseau, who breaks everything, and yet somehow he manages to, to solve the case. And Dreyfus loses it over time, and it's a comedy, so we laugh because we see maybe some of the own tendencies sometimes in our own heart a little bit. But in his irrationality, he starts just trying to do whatever he can to kill Clouseau and kill anybody who's in his way because he wants to kill Clouseau. Now, now maybe you've seen other movies that are more serious that kind of unpack this idea of sin leading to greater sin, to OCD-ness and and having to cover it up and, and, and losing all rationality and just being overcome and taken by sin. But that is what sin will do. Remember that that sin will take you further than you want to go, and it will always keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will always cost you more than you ever thought you would have to pay. Beware the irrationality of a disbelieving heart. And let me say to you Christians who are here, choosing sin, whether it's that impulsive sin of lust or pride or giving in to anger, understand that choosing sin is choosing unbelief. It's it's the opposite of following after Jesus. And it comes down to every decision that we have to make. Um, It comes down to the moments of our lives. Um, Beware, beware the, not only our ability to rationalize our sin, beware of our capacity for irrational wickedness and just look to the cross. And so that's what we're going to do in the second section, part two. We're going to talk about an unwitting prophecy that we see in the midst of all this of atonement, an unwitting prophecy of atonement. And the reason I call it unwitting is it's made by Caiaphas in his wicked suggestion, his selfish suggestion to kill Jesus Um, This was, we need to remember, this was a brutal thought made by a heart that was far from God, and yet God, in his providence, turned this wicked thought into a prophecy of our atonement. And that's a big word, we're going to talk about that in a moment here. But God turned this wicked thought of Caiaphas to, to to, to kill Jesus so as to protect himself and his power and, and that of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and as he rationalized it, the nation, God took that wicked thought this man had and actually turned it into a prophetic statement that we should exult in as Christians. So we're going to look at that. But look at verse 51 and 52. Here we read, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And and that word for is really important. And not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Pastor John MacArthur wrote, God sovereignly turned his wicked, blasphemous words 
into truth. Let's take a moment here as we think about that. A man saying something utterly wicked, and at the same time, the Holy Spirit turning that statement into a prophecy of truth that we can look back on and even worship God for. And let's just marvel at divine providence. Let's marvel for a moment at divine providence. Now, this is a concept that is greater, I believe, than the bandwidth of our uh, human uh, intellect. So let me just read to you um, uh, a definition or a statement on providence from the Abstract of Principles at Southern Seminary. This, is, uh, this was written back in the 1800s. But it says this about providence. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any way to be the author or approval of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of his intelligent creatures. Now that, there's a lot right there. But did you catch all that? Now this is the same thing that Peter basically said at Pentecost, right? Peter stood before these men who had crucified Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So behold, the mystery of providence. When we think about this prophecy of Caiaphas, and when we think about Jesus' work of atonement on the cross, this was decreed by God. The cross was not a plan B. That was a plan A. When, when God put that, that tree in the garden, he was going to carve from that tree a cross. That was the plan from, from eternity past. And yet, God is never pleased, and God is not the direct cause of sin. Right? So there is some mystery here for us to simply embrace and to worship, that, that God's hand of providence is at work. I'll read it again the, from the Abstract of Principles. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass, and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. We tend to try to put God in a box. Uh, we can't figure out how he could do this, so we deny the one or the other, and yet we see here God's hand of providence. How does he do it? I don't know. He's God and I am not. But let's marvel as well at God's plan for the world. That's our second sub-point. Let's marvel at God's plan for the world. In his divine providence, God planned through the wicked rejection of these religious leaders, and they rejected him from their own hearts. They were not puppets, right? God didn't put his arm up this, the, you know, Caiaphas was not a puppet where, where God is just making him say what he wants to say. This came from Caiaphas's heart, this wicked idea. And yet God, in his providence, used Caiaphas' words prophetically to talk about Jesus' atoning work, which would be for the world. 
And so through the wicked rejection of these religious leaders, God's plan was to save people from across the face of the earth. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This was God's plan from the beginning, and it was because of his love for the entire world. And we see more specifically in Romans, I'm sorry, in Revelation, the very end of the book, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and have made them a kingdom and priests for our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So this was God's glorious plan. I mean, we can go back. Denise and I were talking this week about the Tower of Babel, right? What a, a wicked moment in human history where, where man came together and decided to build a tower saying, we don't need God. We are going to reign over ourselves. That self, that wickedness of self-autonomy. And did God approve of that? Absolutely not. Was, it, was that wicked in his sight? Yes, it was. And yet, without Babel, we would not have Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. God's plan from eternity past. To, to, to have a people from all these different language groups and nations and cultures and this kaleidoscope of beauty worshiping Him. And so I hope that you are excited about God's plan for the nations. And I think we should remember that we are some of those ones who were scattered abroad whom he brought into his family, right? I mean, this is not Jerusalem, right? We, we are not Israel, right? We are on the other side of the world, and yet he included us in his sovereign plan. And through the, the wickedness of these religious leaders who rejected their Messiah, God has grafted us into this promise that he made his chosen people Israel. And so I want to be a part of continuing to make known his plan to all of God's children who are scattered among the nations. All of those people whom he has chosen who will bow their knee before Christ and will believe, uh, I, I think there's not a greater reason to, to live than to worship him and to, to make worshipers among the nations. And so I do hope, as Pastor Robbie reminded us this morning in two weeks' time, I, I hope that you'll mark your calendars for our missions conference coming up on October 15th and October the 22nd. So in two weeks and, and three weeks, um, this is gonna be a great time for us to connect with some of our missionaries and to celebrate his work in redeeming the nations. And, and I thought Morgan did a good job last week of introing um, the, the, the missions conference and talking about the importance uh, life groups of, of being ready to, to represent your missionaries. And if I had a critique uh, Morgan's intro, or maybe Robbie's today, suddenly I got their attention. Um, I would just say one thing they probably didn't emphasize enough, uh, they talked about a lot of good things. Morgan talked about the importance, life groups, of, of like not only highlighting the, your missionaries, but their ministries. But I think they did not emphasize the importance of food when it comes to this thing. Okay? So um, food is important. It matters, okay? Life groups, do you hear me? So part of the deal here is you're preparing like a little sampling of the kind of food that, that your sent ones, your missionaries that you represent eat, 
And, and a couple years ago, I, had the, I was asked by the missions team to kind of be the judge. And I, I had a couple kids, including my daughter, Christine, who helped me out. Remember that, Christine? And we went and we went to every single table and we looked at all the awesome stuff about their ministries and the artifacts and all that. But we sampled the food. And let me tell you, the food was not an unimportant part in our decision uh, in terms of which booth won. So that is important. So come bring your A game, right? Talk to your missionaries about what is out there. Um, maybe you're looking at me and thinking, no pressure. No, there's some pressure, right? So A game life groups. And, and maybe you're not in a life group. Um, maybe you, you, you know, you've come to Rocky recently and you haven't yet joined a life group. Um, you know what? Come to the conference um, and come to the missions festival on the 15th. It's a great time to learn more about those that we support uh, and those that we pray for. Because this is an important reason that we're here. And that is to, to hold, the, hold the ropes and to descend and, and to be a part of God's redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we should marvel at God's plan for the world. And of course, Jesus made it more clear with his, what we call the Great Commission, the, those last words that he gave to his disciples after his resurrection. But we even see seeds of that right here in this text but finally, and here's where I'd like to um, land the plane, let's marvel at the cross. And, 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 and let, let's think for a moment about the cross. Maybe, maybe some of you are wearing a cross right now. now. Now, when we think about the cross, we need to remember that this is a cruel torture device invented by wicked people to instill fear. Uh, of, of any kind of lawlessness. I mean, uh, some pastors will tell you that there's not a, a more brutal form of capital punishment than crucifixion known to man. I'm not sure that's really true. Uh, and the reason I say that is uh, my ancestors, uh, those Europeans in the medieval times, um, they were pretty good at coming up with some pretty mean ways to kill people. Okay, if you've ever visited some of the dungeons in some of these castles in Europe, you're like, whoa, all right. But crucifixion, was designed to slowly kill a person and to totally humiliate them before the masses. And I'm not sure that, that, that there's any other form of, of, of death uh, that anyone's come up with that's more effective than that. And so we don't wear crosses around our necks or, or have a cross right here be, because we're somehow obsessed with torture. The, the reason that we elevate the cross and, and think about the cross and mark ourselves with the cross as it represents hope to us. You see, this was God's plan for our redemption. This was his chosen instrument for what we call atonement. When we look at the cross, we see the intersection of man's wickedness, taking their Messiah, the, the Son of God, and and putting him to death in this horrific way. We see an intersection of, of man's wickedness and God's divine providence, which was his grace to us at the cross. Because that's where Jesus secured the atonement of all who call on his name in sincere faith. If you want to know how to be saved, you believe and, and you call on him. In sincere faith. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the Lord. That's God through Christ. And that's recognizing that you're broken and sinful. It's a cry of 
desperation, but all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But let's briefly look back to the Old Testament to better understand this concept of atonement that Caiaphas here unwittingly prophesied when he talked about Jesus dying for the nation. And and John explaining that it wasn't only for the nation of Israel, but it was for all of those who are scattered abroad who would believe in Jesus. Well, back in Exodus chapter 12, we we read the story of the Passover lamb. Uh, The wicked Pharaoh had refused to let God's people go, and the command that God had sent by his prophet Moses. And, And so nine plagues had been sent against him, and he had refused, he had refused to repent. And so this big plague here was going to be the death of the firstborn. And so there was a, a Passover, the very first Passover, in which um, God's people, the Jews, were, were given a specific way in which they were to prepare a meal. And they were to take the blood of this Passover lamb and to put it on the doorposts above the, the door of their home, this blood, which was a, a picture of covering. And the idea here was that the lamb was giving its life to save the firstborn son from the Jewish camp. And later in the Jewish sacrificial system, we had a lamb uh, uh, being sacrificed. And the idea of the sacrifice was we are sinners and God is holy. And it was personal. The idea here was that Blood must be, must be spilled because of our wickedness, because of our sin. And so um, for some of the pa- uh, sacrifices, it would actually, if you were the, the family bringing your lamb, you had to do the deed, even as the priest was overseeing it, you had to have your hands on that lamb. And the idea was your sin was being laid on that lamb. Well, all of this pointed to Jesus. We know that the blood of, of lambs and goats are not, as, as the author of Hebrews says, as um, uh, effective to take away our sins, but it all pointed to the final sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus in John 1.29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus atoned for the sins of all who would trust in him on the cross. That, that song that I quoted earlier continues, All I Have is Christ. But as I ran my hell-bound race indifferent to the cost, You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Is that true for you? Is that how you look back to the cross, Christian? I I hope, I hope that every one of you looks to the cross and and sees God's plan of atonement and redemption for you. And you give him thanks. John Piper wrote, there was only one hope for me, 
that the infinite wisdom of God might make a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God so that I might become a son of God. And that's the gospel. It's not the prosperity gospel we hear today, which, which says God just wants you to be happy and, and wealthy. Uh, doesn't really want to talk much about our sin or God's holiness or his wrath against our sin. Just wants to talk about universalism. Uh, that, that at the end of the day, as long as you are sincere, that's all that matters. What you believe doesn't really matter. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And this is what we see, sadly, in this story today. The religious leaders uh, of his own people rejected him. Now, that doesn't mean that every Pharisee rejected him. We know Nicodemus believed. We know others later uh, of the priests came to faith. We know Jesus' disciples were Jews. But the religious establishment rejected them. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, what does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to believe in his name. Not that he was just a, 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 a cool guru, right? Or a Uh, an amazing miracle worker, but he was the Messiah, the very Son of God. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. When we think of our own wickedness, And when we think of your providence, O God, we marvel and give you thanks. And I pray that that would be the true state of our hearts this morning. Gratitude and worship towards you and faith towards your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. As we do move into a time of communion, Lord, I pray that we would commune with you uh, from humble hearts and grateful hearts. And I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.